It is good to have you in worship. And uh, as, um, as we prepare to look at God's Word, just a couple of things about what happened last week. Many of you were in our worship service last week where we had, um, we looked at um, how we could pray together in the presence of God. And we went through an exercise where at the end of the service, we constructed this, um, well, a copy, if you will, of the wall of, West, of Jerusalem. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, we had people come and put prayers in there. And to be honest, I thought we'd have some response, but you overwhelmed me and the rest of the staff and the leaders. And the Spirit of God was here in a powerful way. Uh, it took way longer than we expected, but it in many ways reflected, I think, the needs in your lives. And um, we took what happened and your response to that with intense seriousness. This past weekend, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, the staff and the elders have been away at our annual leadership retreat. And please be assured, those prayers went with us, and they became an intense part of what we prayed about this past weekend. And they were divvied up amongst all the individuals, and we, we prayed very seriously over them. So you can be assured that what you wrote on those pieces of paper are between you and God, but you can also be assured that they have been taken to the Lord in a very um, intentional way. Within the coming days, as we mentioned, we will burn all those together like they do in Jerusalem, and we will bury them here on the grounds as a constant uh, prayer memorial, if you will, to God on your behalf, all right? So that's, that'll be coming in the days ahead. This week, 10 years ago, this weekend, June 6th, of 2004, the Talties joined us in worship, in worship and on staff, and if you see them around the building, you should thank them for 10 years of great service, if you would, please, okay? And then one final thing, and that is that last weekend we had a really sweet event, and I always love to show you this photo as it comes up each year, or each every few months. This is the class of all the babies we dedicated uh, last Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock. And it's, you've got to come to one of those deals. You've got to come. It's just amazing to see all these families and their, you know, grandma and grandpa and aunt and uncle. They come and they pray around in circles around those children. And then we take that photo. It's a sweet thing. So we'd love to um, just celebrate uh, celebrate that there are more on their way. We've got another crop arriving here in the next few months. So it's all good stuff. I love it. Hey, there are churches that don't have that, so it's cool. Leviticus chapter 10 is where we're going to read today, all right? Leviticus chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew rack in front of you. I'd be honored, seriously, I'd be honored if you'd take that Bible home as our gift to you today. The page numbers to find Leviticus, it's in the front of the book. You can see the page numbers on the screen behind me. Leviticus is the third book of the Bible, um, and we're going to read from Leviticus chapter 10 in just a moment or two. Uh, some events have taken place uh, in our community, as you're looking for it. Some events have taken place in the last couple of weeks that really bring what I'd plan to bring to you today kind of to the forefront and have offered us with an entrance into this passage of Scripture. Namely, I'm, I'm referring to our recent, uh, last weekend when the Westboro Baptist Church people showed up, and some of you may be familiar with them. Um, they were strange, uh, always strange. This is the second time now where I've been engaged where they were going to be protesting. Even Mike Englehart is in Kansas City singing this week and come to find out they're protesting where he's singing. So it's like, Mike, you're taking them with you wherever you go. 
but, <laughs> but nonetheless, um, they're protesting sin. Well, okay. And I want to go, if you're going to protest sin, maybe you should come and stand in my office and yell at me because I'm a sinner. Maybe you need to come to my home and yell at me there because I'm a sinner there. And maybe if you could, you need to get inside my heart and protest there because I mess up before God. They had strange things that they, at least, I, I couldn't quite figure out what they were doing here. Uh, they, they were protesting at one of the Baptist churches in town because that Baptist church doesn't have their children with them all the way through a worship service. They, they dismiss the kids halfway through worship to go to children's church or to Sunday school. And they call that sin. And I'm going, well, they could have come here because most of, most of the time our kids are completely separate from us when we're in this building. you know. And so, I mean, I guess if that's the definition of sin, that would apply to us. And then um, they, they protested at my friend's church, Father Joe Malloy down at Holy Family, uh, because they said, and this is their statement, that Roman Catholics rape children. And I wanted to go, you know... Evil people rape children. You know, and there's, we've got plenty on the Protestant side who've raped children. You know, I, I admittedly, the Roman Catholics have had some trouble in recent years in terms of what some of the priests have done and that sort of stuff. I get that. But to say that the Roman Catholics have a corner on sin is a problem, don't you think? And it, it's, um, it really... They've provided me with an on-ramp onto, into today's message. And I just want to ask, why are they so angry? I get that they believe they're reflecting God's anger at sin, and I, I get that. I don't know that their behavior really helps people to step away from sin. In fact, I think they're really their focus is on behavior modification and sheer determination on the part of the sinner. And sheer determination will never change behavior. Behavioral change requires a heart change. And uh, I'm reminded of what Philip Yancey says about these kinds of things when he says that Christians get very angry toward other Christians who, don't, who sin differently than they do. That's some truth there, right? Some truth there. So as an on-ramp uh, that they provided for me today, if you will, what is sin? What, I mean, if they're complaining about sin, what is sin? Well, sin is any behavior or thought that doesn't allow God full and absolute control of a person's life. It's contrary to the very first commandment that God gave Moses. I'm the Lord your God, don't have any other gods. Or what Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and being. And the truth is, it's a heavy sermon today, the truth is this. All of us face this problem. We all have sin because we innately choose to let God be in charge of some portions of our lives. And we go, well, you can have this, this, and this, but I didn't want it anyway. But the part that I really want and the part that's really important to me, I don't know if I'm going to let you be in charge of that. And that's sin. It might lead to particular forms of behavior, but it's sinful in its root as to where our heart is. But I've got good news for you today that if you're like me and you face that problem, then God provides a way out of sin. I'm going to talk to you, talk to you about that today and show you how that happens. All within the context of what I've been bringing to you throughout this series on the presence of God. You've been with, if you've been with us, you know that this series was initiated, if you will, when I was standing at the base of the Western Wall a number of weeks ago in Jerusalem. 
the Judaism's most holy site. And I had this powerful moment thinking about the presence of God. And um, I've hinted at what was going on at that site three millennia ago, 3,000 years ago. But we've never delved into it deeply in recent years. So all that stuff that goes on at that Western Wall, I want to see if I can unpack it for you and how we ended up at this series in a little more detail today, all right? So we're going to read from Leviticus chapter 10, not usually a passage of scripture that is focused on in a church setting. It's an event that takes place shortly after Israel had left Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. They get to leave Egypt. And um, by this time, the nation knew that God was leading, him, leading them. They knew that they had to treat God's presence and leadership with great reverence, that God would, in a cloud, come and direct them. A cloud during the day would appear in the sky. Sometimes the cloud would come down, and one of their people would get to go in and have a chat with God. Sometimes the cloud went on the mountain, and Moses would go. At nighttime, it was a fire that they could see in the sky. And as we read, you're going to come across some characters in this story. Moses, who is the leader of the nation... Aaron, who is Moses' brother, Israel's high priest, if you will, the top religious dog in in the country, and two of his sons with very unusual names, Nadab and Abihu, all right? And we're going to watch and see what happens as they deal with the presence of God. And it'll take us a while to unpack all this, so hang with me, read along. If you read along, it'll really help. Leviticus chapter 10, we read this, that Aaron's sons, their names were Nadab and Abihu, took their censers. They put fire in them, added incense, and they offered, and here's the key word, unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. In other words, they were going to go into the presence of God and offer a sacrifice. It was unauthorized. They were not supposed to do that in that setting. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, so Aaron is grieving, if you will, the loss of his two sons, because they brought their sin up against the presence of God, and it was not a pretty sight. Moses says to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I'll be proved holy. In the sight of all people, I will be honored. And Aaron remained silent. Moses summoned two fellows, Mishael and Elzalphan, sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, and said to them, come here, carry your cousins outside the camp, away from the front of the sanctuary. So they came, carried them, still in their tunics, outside the camp, as Moses ordered. Moses said to Aaron and his sons, the next two sons, do you think they're going to do what their older brothers or their brothers had done? They're going, I ain't doing that. They've learned the hard way, right? Eleazar and Athamar, don't let your hair become unkempt. Do not tear your clothes, or you will die, and the Lord will be angry with the whole community. In other words, they wanted, grieving would normally that they would let just become, they wouldn't bathe and they would tear their clothes. And Moses said, no, you can't show a whole lot of grief here on this because this is God's holiness that was affronted. But your relatives, all the Israelites may mourn those who God has destroyed by fire. But do not leave the entrance to the tent of meeting or you will die because the Lord's anointing oil is on you. So they did, as Moses said. It's pretty plain, you don't mess with God. If you mess with the presence of God, your hair is going to get singed. It's going to be a bad hair day, so to speak, all right? As a matter of fact, it's going to get more than singed. We know this, that from the perspective of the Israelites, that the glory of the Lord in Exodus, we read this, is they look and see this cloud that comes now and then, and they see the presence of God, that to them, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Or we read that Moses reminds them in Deuteronomy at the end of his career, 
as he's talking about the things of God, he said, I want you to remember this. The Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And so they've learned in a very, very difficult way, in a painful way, that you don't come up against the presence of God without some real warning, without some real understanding of what's taking place. So I want you to look and see now in Leviticus chapter 16. Turn there. I do hope you're reading along because to put all this together, this is kind of we're going to build a case here today. You're going to need to follow along. Leviticus chapter 16. We're going to see how the nation deals with this sinning of the, two, of the two brothers and how it impacted the nation's life in the future. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. So we're suddenly referring back to Leviticus 10. Does that make sense? So now they've got new instructions how they're supposed to handle the presence of God. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die, for I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is what happened. The two guys, the two young men, they just walked, if you will, almost willy-nilly with nonchalance into the presence of God. And now Aaron's going to go, I don't know what, how, I'm, how am I supposed to offer sacrifices to God? I, this is my job. I'm the top religious dude to do this. And Moses said, this is what God says. Don't come whenever you just feel like it into the presence of God. Just don't walk into the cloud without some awareness. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place, verse 3. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering, a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. Now, th th this sash had a, had a long rope attached to it. And they had bells on the bottom of his tunic because they were afraid that if he did something wrong in the presence of God, I mean, these two guys came up against the presence of God, they died. He's actually going to go in there. What if he does something wrong and he dies? How will they know? Well, he's got bells on the bottom of his tunic so that as he's moving around, they, they can listen outside the curtain and they can hear. But if the, if, if he, if the bells stop ringing, he's laying down dead. So then they've got this sash that's tied around him and they can kind of pull him out, lift the curtain, brave, and get him out. That's the idea, all right? So he's got that. These are sacred garments. He must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite communities to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. So here's what we have. We have Aaron, now the high priest, in light of the death of his two sons and them coming up against the presence of God and not paying attention. They now know that he's got, to take, he's got to take far more precaution of dealing with God. And he's supposed to bring a, a number of animals, including two goats. And then verse 11, we're going to see what happens as he goes into the presence of God, where he goes behind the curtain. And this is where we see in action the points that I've been bringing to you, that there is this separation between if you have the temple, if you will, this long rectangular building, one end you've got the people, the other end you've got the holy of holies, the presence where, where the cloud used to come. And there's a thick curtain that separates them. A thousand years later after this passage right here, pardon me, at 1000 BC, many years after this passage was written, they actually built, this is in a, this is in a t traveling tent right here, but when you get to uh, Jerusalem as the nation's capital, they build a temple, same construction, if you will, what, what the tabernacle the tent looked like and again they're separated and they've got a curtain that's four inches thick fabric separating the holies holy of holies from the rest of the people and it's 
this, this fabric. And so he's supposed to go behind there. Look at what happens. Verse 11. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. And he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. Excuse me. And on, on the outside of the temple, and you can go to Jerusalem and see where this was, they literally had a place called the sheep pen where uh, all these animals would be sacrificed. And in, in days when of 1000 BC through to about 586 BC, and then during the days when Jesus is alive, it was probably a pretty gory place full of lots of blood because these animals are being killed there to be taken in and sacrificed, okay? Verse 12, he is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord, two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense, and take them where? Behind the curtain. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord, and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the tablets of the covenant law so that he won't die. He is to take some of the bull's blood, and with his finger, notice what he's going to do. He's going to sprinkle it on the atonement cover. You've got the Ark of the Covenant with the Ten Commandments inside it. It's got a covering on it, and he's putting blood on it, okay? Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people. So up until now, it's just for his own sin. But once he gets to the goat, this is for the people. He's to slaughter that for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, here's what happens as a result of all this. He will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. So at this point, you've got a lot of animals dying. There's a lot of blood all over the place. And we, I want you to notice that the blood of the animals covers Aaron's sin, personally, as he's standing there, and covers the sin of the people representing them. But look what happened to the second goat. At this point, all the animals have died except for one goat. Verse 20 of chapter 16. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar... He shall bring forward the live goat. So there's one goat that's left alive. All right? He's to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and the rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them, if you will, symbolically on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness." That goat became known as what? Anyone any idea, idea? Scapegoat. We have this word in English called the scapegoat, where somebody is the, you know, that's the guy who takes all the blame. This is it, right? Light, quite literally right here. Because we have the blood covering sin, and the scapegoat, if you will, symbolically, the blood covers the sin, and then the scapegoat carries it out of the community. And that was the formula for dealing with the sin of the nation of Israel. That was the approach the people had to take in order to deal with their personal sin and their national sin. And once a year, this happened once a year, the high priest would go through this ritual and animals would have to give their blood and that blood would be taken into the most holy place and then one goat would be sent into the wilderness. And as you can imagine, it's a pretty gory scene. It's a pretty cumbersome approach to dealing with sin. It was not God's final response to sin, though. Jesus 
was God's final response to sin. And if you understand the Christian story, then you know the pattern of approaching God's presence with sin is, and that sin being forgiven so you don't face the same issue that Aaron's sons faced when they came into the presence of God. Now, through the central act of Jesus' sacrificial death, we can approach the presence of God because he died as a substitute, if you will, for those animals and for us. Theologians call it substitutionary atonement. His blood covers our sin and, if you will, carries it out of our camp. I know you go, man, that's pretty rough. Well, you don't think Jesus' death was rough? Sin is serious business. And when Jesus died, something phenomenal happened in regards to this business of us coming into the presence of God. I've brought this verse to you each and every week in this series, Matthew 27. It tells us that when Jesus died, this veil that separated the presence of God, a holy God from an unholy people, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, that veil of separation between God and humanity was torn in two. In other words, there is no further need for animal sacrifices. Jesus' work, Jesus' work on Calvary has forgiven your sins, has forgiven mine. The veil is torn, and we now have full and complete access to God's presence and leadership at all times. It's for all people. Whoever wants to access it can. That's what was so overwhelming as I stood at the base of that wall those weeks ago, knowing that years ago, 65 feet up and a few feet over was where God's presence was. That was where the Holy of Holies was. And how powerful is it that I don't have to wait on some religious top dog to get in there once a year to make atonement for my sin and hopefully he does it right and we don't all die. I mean, seriously, I like my hair. Don't singe it, please. You know what I mean? That sort of stuff. No. God's presence is no longer there. Now God's presence, as Lacey said, is here among us. And by the work of his Holy Spirit, it's deep within me. And it begs a question then. Okay, if that's what's available to me, how do I access that presence? How do I get rid of the sin that God will not tolerate and could cause me to have a bad hair day? Here's the passage. 1 John chapter 1, all right? It's the passage that Lacey spoke to us a few minutes ago. Go all the way to 1 John. It's all the way at the back of the Bible. Okay, look for Revelation and go backwards just a few, few verses from there, a few books from there. Not the Gospel of John, but 1 John. Okay, it's way at the back. Because by, if you can keep that whole understanding of what happened in Leviticus in play, Jesus coming along and the veil being torn in two, now John, one of Jesus' most beloved disciples, uh, puts it all together and tells us what it all means. First John chapter 1, verse 9, verse 5, pardon me. This is the message. If you want to know how all this goes together, he says, then this is the message we've heard from him, from God the Father, and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And what happens? The blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. In other words, the presence of God as it's walking along, we can say we have fellowship with that because of what? Because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We get to be in the presence. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth isn't in us. Yeah, we are sinful people, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's what you read going into communion today. 
If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. In other words, if we do face sin, then there is a high priest who goes into the presence of God and reminds God that our sin is forgiven. In the book of Hebrews, he's called the great high priest. Do you know who he is? Jesus Christ, John says, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So quickly, some bullet points about this passage, tying it all together. Write these down. Be helpful for you in the week ahead. Be reminded, friends, Jesus' blood. Jesus' blood is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. We don't need to be afraid of God any longer, thinking that we'll die like Nadab and Abihu. Remember, they didn't take account for their sin coming up against God's holy presence, and it was a deadly combination. But now Jesus' blood acts as a substitute for the blood that Aaron carried into the cloud. Jesus' blood is already there on your behalf. Secondly, this passage tells us that confession on our part brings about a heart change. Confession, namely the acknowledgement of sin and sorrow for it, purifies us. And I would say this about our culture right now. Our culture seems to have forgotten um, a biblical definition of sin, if you put it this way. We've actually come to the place where we celebrate some sins in our culture. And it, it's quite disturbing to me that where we have literally said, well, we don't really, what the Bible says about sin doesn't really matter in enlightened people like us, in a modern and um, technological world like us, like us. No, that's not true. If we as Christians say the Bible is the authoritative word of God, the infallible word of God, then what it says has to hold weight in our lives. Scripture calls us to have a realistic definition of sin, what the Bible says sin is, and then confess it as such. The good news is if we confess it, it's forgiven. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And we can come into the presence of God and not worry about whether or not we're going to die. And coming out of that, coming out of the work of the blood of Jesus Christ, coming out of our confession of sins and it being forgiven, then something else takes place. John talks about the way in which we walk. In other words, repentance. The blood of Jesus Christ provides us with an opportunity to confess, and then we repent. Repentance is the natural response to the forgiveness of our sins. In other words, what's repentance? It's changing our behavior. Based on the confession of sin, based on a heart change, we say we're going to walk differently. The story of Scripture, friends, catch this. The story of Scripture always indicates that a person's nature determines their walk. You can't walk your way into having a better heart. Your heart has to be changed through the work of Jesus Christ, through His blood being applied to your life, through confession. And then based on that, you walk differently. Our heart dictates how we walk. And I think this is where the folk at Westboro are missing it. In the midst of all their vile language and their hate words, it appears that they think if they yell hard enough, they will change individuals' behavior. But behavioral modification is not the goal of Scripture. It is not the intent of God. It is not why Jesus died just so you would live more holy. No, the reason that Jesus died is so that you would have a heart change going back to the first commandment that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and being and that you will say that the, that the Lord God is the Lord and you will have no other gods before you. Now, you might change your behavior. Yes, that's called repentance. Repentance is I'm going this way in the way in which I walk. I'm turning around based on confession and I'm going another direction. But you can't go the other direction unless you've made the confession first. 
So how do you get access to God's presence? You acknowledge that God has provided the means through Jesus Christ, his blood. And we use that death, we use his death to bring godly weight to our confession. And then we repent. We change our walk. We walk our talk. Our talk is, is mirrored in the way in which we walk. We can't say one thing and do another and still have credibility. If you want to have credibility as a follower of Jesus Christ, you've got to walk your talk. What a, what's the major complaint that you hear about from non-followers of Jesus about Christians? They're hypocrites, right? Because we're not walking our talk. So I've got to ask you this question. In light of all that Jesus has done for you, in light of your confession, how's the walk going, friends? Because I assume most of us in this room have confessed our sins. How's the repentance part going? Does it mirror your talk? I'm very conscious of asking you that question. Very conscious of all week long I debated, could I ask you that question in light of who I am as an individual man myself? I mean, I can't, I'm aware, I can't pontificate up on this stage all weekend long if my preaching doesn't follow through in the way in which I walk. Does it follow through with the way in which I treat my family and the way in which I interact with the rest of this staff and this church on a daily basis, with the way in which I meet people around in the community? Does my walk mirror my talk? I mean, how does my, how does my walk mirror my talk when that person at that green light seems to have forgotten how to push the accelerator. I mean, have you noticed how long some people take to figure out green means go? What planet do they live on? I can be so impatient. Oh, I can be so impatient at moments like that. And that is, impatience is not one of the fruit of the Spirit. And so pretty quickly... I'm sitting there, you know, I've learned not to blow the horn, not to push the horn. But my heart is not doing real well with that person. <laughs> How would I dare join Westboro to complain about someone else's sin when I'm still having moments of impatience? Just because impatience is a little more humorous doesn't mean it's any more acceptable to God than the sins they complain about, right? Right? I want to walk my talk. And so, to help you understand what, how this all might play out, let me take you back one more time today, and we're going to do a few more things next week, and we'll be done with Jerusalem, okay? I want to take you back to Jerusalem one more time and give you a brief history of what happened on the Temple Mount. Temple Mount is a piece of ground that is 12 acres in, in size, right above that wall right there, okay? You go up 65 feet, you're on the Temple Mount. A few feet over was where they built the temple, 1000 BC or so. The temple stood there, it got taken down, it got put back up. Short, like we can't get into all that, but beginning in the 4th century, about in the middle of the 300s, after Jesus died, Christians controlled Jerusalem. It's called the Byzantine period. And during that period of time in Jerusalem, lots of churches were built at a lot of the holy sites. Well, a few centuries after that, 1400 years ago, the Muslims came in and began between the massive war, wars, which eventually became the Crusades between the Muslims and Christians. When the Muslims arrived in Jerusalem 1,400 years ago, they began looking, what can we do? By that time, the temple had been torn down, and they looked at the holy site of the temple of Jerusalem, and they said, let's put a mosque right there on the Temple Mount. 
Long story as to why they did that, but that's what happened. But you're in the Middle East where there's no wood. Trees don't grow there very easily. So what's the major building material? Stone. And if you're building buildings and you're in the city and you're looking around, we want to build these buildings pretty quickly and we've got to get material, where would you go? And you say, well, look at those churches that those guys, they hewed all those stones. It'd be a whole lot easier just to pull the stones out of those buildings and use them rather than get people you know, with chisels doing it ourselves. So they tore down a lot of the churches that had been built by the Byzantines. Now, as they tore down those churches, when they would come across a Christian symbol, they would know, well, we can't put a cross in a mosque. And so those stones were not used. So they, apart from that, they were very, not very uh, worried about what, what symbols might be coming from churches. And throughout Jerusalem, there's a symbol that appears and on a large stone that's probably four and a half by four and a half, one of these symbols appears in the wall of that mosque. If you were to take, going in the mosque there, on the, if you were to go in the door, uh, but actually stay outside. So you see where the door is. The wall that is not that the door is facing on, but the one to the right, running off at about a, you know off to two o'clock in the afternoon, if you will, if, if you think of a clock. There's a big stone that's from a Byzantine church in that wall right there. This is what it looks like. The Muslims, the the the, the, the Muslims put it in their wall. It's on the outside of the wall. It's there to this day, 14 centuries later, unaware of what was there. Let me tell you about that stone. Because I think it's absolutely fascinating. They took it from a church. If you look at that, this stone is set in that mosque on the Temple Mount, the third most holy site in the Islam faith. It's a Christian stone. They just didn't know it when they put it there. The big circle in the center is um, how the the Byzantines uh, reflected the fullness of the story of Jesus Christ and how his blood completely covers all sin. All right. The four circles, like north, south, east, and west, represent the stories of Jesus Christ that we find in Scripture. His biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In other words, the complete, story, the complete work of Jesus Christ, the covering of our sin, and all that God did is found in Jesus Christ. Big circle. It's all displayed and told in the four Gospels. And then the arrows in the corners of that stone are the Byzantines saying, And we proclaim that this gospel will go from Jerusalem to the uttermost corners of the earth. Think about that. Can you catch the irony that the story of the fullness of Christ's work is sitting in the wall of a mosque on the Temple Mount? Is there a little more than irony there? Way more than irony. Far more than irony. I like the, I love the whole thing that the story of Jesus' work, the story that gives you access to God's presence being made possible by his blood, that stone is set in the side of the mosque and it's telling of the supremacy of Christ over all religions and that it's going to go to all four corners. Back both in the 350 mark when that stone was first carved and made and in 1400 years ago when it was put in that mosque, America and most of us have not been thought of. And yet here we are, 14 centuries later, and we sit, and what can we say? We we are the recipients of that story, of the completeness of God Almighty. In other words, that story, which is depicted in that stone, comes across millennia to tell you and remind you of how two foolish men thought they could mix their sin with God's presence. That stone tells us that the way in which their father Aaron made spe- special and specific preparations to avoid the same mistake. 
And that stone tells us the story this morning of the veil that separated a sinful people from a holy God. And yet it also tells us of the tearing of that veil and that curtain and how through the blood of Jesus Christ we have full access to the presence of God. That stone tells us the story of how our sin has been covered through the atoning sacrificial work of Jesus' blood. That stone tells us the story of the possibility of your confession of sin leading to a new heart. And that stone tells you the story that this week you can act differently and you can walk differently because of the confession of your sin and your heart has been changed. You can take on a new lifestyle approach. And that stone story is in front of you today challenging you to how you're going to live and walk and your heart this week. Today is the day to step into confession, repentance, and full reliance on Jesus' blood as you sit in God's presence right now. Let us pray. Father, guys, Father, we come to you right now in the name of Jesus. And uh, hear our hearts. We want to confess our sin. We ask for forgiveness. We, we, we approach you with some deadly weight on this, knowing that if we just walk into your presence without sin being atoned for, it's a problem. And so um, we would choose to acknowledge our sin. And then we're asking for a heart change because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And Lord, that we would then, based on that heart change, walk differently this week. We don't have any great plans in that regard in terms of how we're going to do it, God. But you're, as you lead us, you will do it for us, we pray. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Hey, friends. Slight change, okay? I want to say this to you. As you leave here today, you don't have to go doing this by yourself. Again, it's not sheer determination for you to walk differently this week. It's, it's all possible because God wants to change your heart. If you need prayer about that as we close the service, there'll be some of us here at the front of the church who'd love to pray with you. Guests, we'd like to talk to you. If you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ, this would be a really good day to do that, okay? Seriously, this would be a great, you know now why he came. I'd invite you as we close the service to go, as the people go, step forward. And I'm inviting you to stand together, please, and hear the word of the Lord. John says that if we confess our sins, his faithful and just will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He goes on to say, I'm writing to the, to this to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I'm writing to you because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you because you are strong and the word of God lives within you. Go with the word of God living within you. And he says, I write to this because you have overcome the evil one. As you go this week, go with the blood of Christ covering your sin. Go with the confession of your heart leading you to a better lifestyle. Have a great week and God bless you.